Chapter 20 of Policy and Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Policy and Passion by Rosa Campbell Preed. Chapter 20 In the Scrub. The stillness of the scrub was almost oppressive as Honoria and her companions wandered on. Trees of giant stature and of almost primeval growth closed thickly over their heads and shut out all the glare of sunlight. As the brushwood became less dense, the bottle-trees reared themselves aloft like great white pillars, and on every side there stretched dim vistas of trunk and foliage, resembling cathedral aisles roofed with pendant moss. The glossy bunyas, laden with their ripening cones, promised an aboriginal feast. Strange creepers and brilliant-hued flowers tapestried the grey, irregularly shaped stones, which seemed scattered promiscuously upon the ground, and at every moment fallen logs, moss-grown and warm-eaten, impeded their steps. Avoiding Honoria, Dyson walked on in front with Lord Dolph, only turning to say sharply, Do not forget that we are skirting the ravine and may chance unawares upon a precipice. The ground was rough, and once or twice Miss Longleat stumbled. Won't you take my hand? said Barrington. The words were commonplace enough, nevertheless, her cheeks flushed and her eyes brightened with inward excitement as they met his. She was torn between two impulses, the one to overtake Maddox and beseech his protection from a peril she dared not name, the other to yield blindly to the fascination which Barrington's voice and touch were weaving round her. No, she replied brusquely, I don't want help. We are coming to a stony place continued Barrington steadily. It is rough walking. You had better accept my arm. Why do you force me to do what I dislike? cried Honoria, at the same time stretching forth her hand, which was immediately enclosed in his. I am accustomed to being independent. I hate to be helped over rough ways. But all day long I seem to be fighting against your influence. It is stronger than I. It makes me feel... do... what is abhorrent to me in every way. "'little and great. "'I don't know how it is,' she added, "'with an uncertain kind of laugh. "'I have changed lately.' "'That is what I wish,' said Barrington, "'and his grasp upon her fingers involuntarily tightened. "'Fie!' exclaimed Honoria, recovering herself "'and trying to appear saucy. "'You pay me a poor compliment. "'Most people like me best as I am.' "'I do not wish to be classed among the many by you,' said Barrington. It is my longing that you should think of me as apart from others. Otherwise I should have no influence over you, and I am ambitious. New possibilities are dawning upon me and upon you, he continued in eager tremulous tones. If you would listen to the faint stirring of your emotions, if you would obey the impulse of your heart, we might both know the keenest joy possible. What is better than to love? Oh, stoop and be sweet to me. There is nothing commonplace about you. You cannot do things by halves. It is not in your nature to be contented with stale sensation. You will take out of life what is best worth having. That is what I wish to give you, the best that I know of. And if I do not think it worth accepting, she said in a low tone, you must do so if you allow yourself to feel. Do not steel yourself against the promptings of your womanhood. I implore you. Do not hold yourself aloof from me. At least, he cried insistently, let me meet your eyes. 
You are not afraid to look at me. Honoria. He drew closer to her, and she felt herself compelled to turn her face towards his. Reluctance and fascination were blended in her glance. His lips and eyes were eloquent with passion, which communicated itself to her frame. It was unwholesome intoxication, but potent while it lasted. Her lips trembled and moved inarticulately. With a violent effort she wrenched herself from his grasp. It was at this moment that Lord Dolph paused to cut down his staghorn fern and announced his intention of rejoining Maggie. "'A fellow cannot lug this about, you know,' he said, "'and I dare say Maddox and Barrington will manage to gather your quantongs for you, Miss Longleat.' Dyson turned to Honoria and caught the swift glance of appeal which she directed towards him. "'Should you like to return?' he asked. "'Oh, not yet. This is delightful.' There is nothing so fascinating as exploring. You know that, Mr. Maddox. I have set my heart upon getting some quantongs for a necklace. The blacks say that there are plenty in this scrub. Lord Dolph may carry back his fern. We will go on. She spoke with feverish gaiety. Inwardly she was reflecting that there was greater safety in a trio than in a quartet. After walking a little way and conversing constrainedly about the scenery and the vegetation, they came upon a quantong tree, and, pausing beneath it, began to pick up the fallen fruit. Mutual embarrassment made the occupation engrossing, and before long they had filled pockets and pouches. Against a narrow line of brushwood a few paces off there lay a fallen tree, which offered an inviting resting place. They sat down and began to sort their spoils. There were so many berries, each containing a shapely nut, that Honoria might string a dozen necklaces. We are a long way from the camp, said Dyson, and it is nearly four o'clock. We ought to be turning our steps. He spoke wearily, as though the excursion had no zest for him. Honoria leaned forward and looked questioningly into his face, but he avoided meeting her eyes. It needed all his self-control to enable him to stifle any active expression of his hatred and jealousy of the Englishman. It is very pleasant here, said Barrington, and there is a bright moon. Surely we have no need to hasten home. As he spoke, an unlucky movement of his arm broke off a rotten limb of the log upon which they were seated, and sent it crashing to the ground. Like lightning, a flat brown head protruded itself from beneath a piece of the loosened bark, and a whip-snake whose shelter had been rudely disturbed reared itself upon its lithe body and made a dart at Barrington's arm that hung carelessly over the broken branch then glided swiftly past Honoria's feet into the underwood. The girl started forward, and Barrington, uttering an exclamation of horror, made a step backward into the thicket, and disappeared. There was a rustling among the leaves and grass, a rumbling as of falling stones, and then silence. "'Good God!' exclaimed Dyson. "'We have been sitting upon the very edge of the chasm.' Honoria pushed her way through the thick brushwood and parting the branches that screened the ravine, stood on its border and looked down. They had been walking downhill through the scrub, and the precipice at its foot was of no very alarming depth. Immediately below her, Barrington, perfectly sensible, was trying to lift himself from the stones upon which he had fallen. "'Do not be frightened,' he said with complete sang-froid. "'The thing has bitten me, and I am afraid that my other arm is hurt a little, that is all.' He made another more vigorous effort to rise, 
which drew from his lips a sharp cry of pain, and his eyes closed as though he were fainting. Forgetting Dyson, who was already halfway down the descent, Honoria flung herself from tree to tree and dropped at Barrington's side. Dyson pushed her away, and lifting the Englishman's left wrist, already visibly swollen, he drew his bowie-knife from his belt and made several cross incisions on the two purple spots which marked where the snake's fangs had entered. Then he bound his handkerchief tightly as a ligature above the elbow. "'I have got some brandy in my flask. It is under the quantong tree. Try to rouse yourself and suck the poison from your arm while I go and fetch it.' "'Yes,' said Barrington faintly. "'It is this other arm that is so confoundedly helpless.' Suddenly Honoria bent forward, and before either of the men could say her nay, she had placed her young, fresh lips to the bleeding wrist, and was drawing the poison from the wound. There was small danger in the act, yet it was one at which most young ladies would have hesitated. Neither then or afterwards could she account for the impulse which had prompted it. She went on sucking steadily till Dyson had returned with his flask, the contents of which he made the Englishman swallow. That will do he said gravely to Honoria, and fetched her pannikin of clean water from the rivulet beside them. "'Rinse your mouth well out with this and leave him to me. It was not for you to do such a thing. You are certain that there is no scratch upon your lips into which the poison could enter.' She shook her head and did as he bade her, glad of the opportunity to turn away her head. She had caught a long, passionate look from Barrington which— with her mind still full of the agitating remembrance of his words, dyed her face with blushes. These signs of embarrassment Dyson noted, though he appeared engrossed with the sufferer. He had continued to draw the poison from the snake's bite, and was now examining the other arm, which was clearly injured. "'I am afraid that it is broken,' he said, "'but that is of comparative unimportance compared with the bite. You must have more brandy.' I will run on towards the camp as quickly as possible, and you must follow with Miss Longleat. On no account give way to any feeling of stupor. I will coe every now and then, but try to keep me in sight. Come, moments are valuable. The pain in both arms was acute. Barrington turned a ghastly pale as he rose to his feet, and with Dyson's assistance climbed the hill. Only iron resolution kept him from fainting outright. Dyson ran on ahead and Honoria and her companion followed as speedily as they were able. The way was uneven, and Honoria's habit, that had become disarranged in her exertions, caught upon the rocks and twigs and impeded her steps. Several times she stumbled. "'I cannot offer you a hand now,' said Barrington. "'I reproach myself horribly upon your account. You will be worn out before we reach the camp.' "'How can I thank you for being so brave, so devoted?' It was nothing, she exclaimed harshly. I would have done the same for anyone. No, you would not, he cried fiercely. You know that you would not. Why do you say that now? He turned livid, and the drops of sweat gathered upon his forehead. You are in pain, said Honoria. What does it matter about that? You could make my pain heaven if you chose. Say that you did it for me. She was silent. Say it, he repeated insistently. Tell the truth. If you are certain that it is the truth, she replied with a short laugh, where's the use of my repeating it? You did it because you love me, he cried passionately. You love me, I know it. 
Now I am so full of joy that I do not care what happens to me. You make a great mistake, she said coldly, yet faltering. I, I almost hate you sometimes. Don't say that. It is not true. Why did Eleanor suck her husband's wound? Because she loved him better than her life. And you, you love me. You are delirious. I ran no danger. Go on, she added cruelly. You must not lag, or it will be too late for the brandy to do you any good. And they spoke no more till they had joined the Bassets. When they reached the camp, she left Barrington to the tender offices of the rest of the party, and stole away behind a rock where she sat with beating heart and heaving bosom, till she heard Dyson's voice calling for her. By this time it was growing dusk. "'We have pulled the bone together as well as we were able,' said Dyson cheerfully. "'Mr. Ferris is something of a surgeon. As regards the snake-bite, we have dosed him well with brandy. All danger is past. He will take no hurt.' The virus is not so deadly at this time of year. You need not be anxious. You fancy that I care specially because I suck the poison, cried Honoria hysterically. Ah, well, think what you please, what does it matter? I would have done the same for anyone. I am tired. I feel unnerved. I wish that you would put me on my horse and don't let anyone talk to me. I will never come out on an expedition like this again. He mounted her, and they joined the others who were clustering around Barrington. The Englishman was pale and had his arm in a sling, but he bravely professed perfect ability to guide himself. Where the narrow track permitted, Lord Dolph rode beside him and led his horse. The evening was closing in, and they were obliged to make as brisk progress as Barrington's helpless condition would allow, in order that they might get out of the broken country before nightfall. There was a glory of sunset upon the mountains. Every peak stood out distinctly against the yellow sky. At first the sharp crags were of the color of gold, then they became magenta and crimson, and finally purple. Gradually the light faded out of the west, the moon rose, and one by one the stars came forth. Aldebaran and Orion shining high in the blue vault overhead, and the southern cross rising clear above the horizon. Cobra Ball rode before them, his light Crimean shirt looking ghostly through the trees. The night birds sent forth their cries, and the native dogs howled in the scrub which they were skirting. The hum of busy life that had surrounded them during the day had ceased, and all that remained was inarticulate murmurings in the bushes and the grass. They were all very silent. Even Lady Dolph was weary and disinclined for conversation. Dyson only spoke to utter the merest commonplaces and there was a choking sound in Honoria's throat when she answered, which warned him that she was on the verge of hysterical weeping. Angela stood like a pale wraith in the veranda, watching for the return of the riders. She flew to Barrington's side, when, more dead than alive, he was lifted from his horse and conveyed to his bedroom. She was left alone with him for a moment while Mrs. Ferris went out to search for linen to bandage his arm. Now, for the first time in their intercourse, a sense of shame and concealment overpowered her. Never before had she hesitated to meet his eyes frankly or to clasp his hand. Now she glanced at first guiltily towards the door, and then longingly at his unconscious face. She would have sunk to the earth could he have seen or felt the kisses which she rained upon his nerveless fingers. "'Oh, my love, my love,' she murmured, "'my life, I know.' I know. 
she went out into the night and lifted her flower-like face to the stars. It seemed to her that they only, so pure and so far, might witness her maiden ecstasy. Oh, my life, she murmured in passionate tones, I longed for something to worship. I was lonely, and now I have you. You are my son. I must look towards you or die. End of chapter 20 Read by Céline Major.